the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming of age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners, out now. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are talking to the author. Oh, excuse me. Today we are talking to the author of Sunray Alice, Jeremy Hepler. Say hi, Jeremy. Hi, how's it going, everybody? Pretty good, man. And uh, let's dive into this. What got you into horror? Um... Into horror, like, I guess as the, initially would be like as the feeling outside of literature, it would be just growing up. My brother was four years older than me. And so this would have been the early 80s, mid 80s. And he would, after my parents went to bed at night, you know, we would go in the living room and put in, he would put in horror movies, Friday 13s, the Jason movies, all those. And we'd watch them until two and three in the morning. I was six, seven, eight years old. And it would scare the crap out of me. And I would go back to the bedroom, you know, at two or three in the morning, and there was some canyons down the street from our house. And I would assume, you know, those those murders were out there. They were right there. And when they came to town, they were going to come right to my window, right to my house. I totally believe that. And that suspense and fear kept me up a lot of times all night, literally, like I would not sleep. And then the next day would come and throughout the day, it would start to get boring. That suspense would fade. The fear feeling would fade. And the next night I would want it again. I would want that feeling. It was like a drug to know that, you know, there is something out there, something you can't explain, something to be scared of, something to fight. That whole feeling of fear, I think, was initially started in that sense growing up then when I was younger because of my older brother introducing me to show that probably six, seven year old shouldn't have been watching. But 
that's where I think I got the the addiction because I have an obsessive, addictive personality anyway. And so like I became addicted to the feeling. Um, in a literature sense, it came probably around sixth grade. I was in an advanced reading class and our uh, teacher, Mrs. Close, the first story she had us read was The Lottery. You know, and up until then, you're reading cookie cutter shit like Road Doll and E.B. White and The Trumpet Swan. You're reading all these stuff when you're in grade. And I understand the reason for all that and stuff, of course, to instill positive. But we walk in there and she has us read that. And I'm expecting a positive ending. I didn't, we didn't have readers in my house. We nobody in my house read. We didn't have books. It wasn't like that where I grew up. And uh, so when that the end of that story came and she got stoned to death, I, I mean, I freaking loved it. I was like, oh, my God, yes. Like, where are these stories? This is a real story. This is a story where people get the shaft sometimes. You get fucked even if you didn't do anything wrong. There are some things that end bad. And I connected with that more on a visceral, personal level than I ever had any of those happy-go-lucky, good guys always win, everything turns out positive. Because my life at home, my personal life, was nothing like that. And it was more like the lottery. And so on a personal level, and after that, she also had us read uh, Poe. She introduced us the Telltale Heart we read in there. We read Emily Dickinson. We also read Robert Frost and stuff. But Ooh. that's what I started realizing, man. There's stories out there like this, and those are the ones I want to find. Those are the ones I want to read. And so after that is when I started searching out stuff like that, darker, darker, darker literature pieces. Before Bernie jumps in, I want to just focus real quick on Robert Frost. That's really interesting for those that don't know, a New England, New, New England uh, poet. Um, I'm curious what you took away from studying him in school and uh, specifically on poetry, what that does to you as a uh, writer of prose. My, I Really, the, the, the main point I remember, what is was it the road less taken? or less traveled, what was his, I'm trying to remember, we had a right, um, but with his stuff, I just, I don't know, I really don't remember a lot of what we did, we did the main poems, but I just loved his voice, I loved the way he addressed things very simply, and very crisply, and cut and dry and directly, but it was, but you know, she taught us how on a deeper level, you can do stuff really um, direct and short and curt, but have such a deep impact and meaning behind such small, such a small amount of words and such a short message can carry so much weight if you deliver it properly and if you deliver it in the right sense. And that was something that our teacher reinforced about the stuff he wrote. And I think that, of course, goes into longer literature and anything um, when it comes to the weight of words, you know, not needing to be wordy to carry a lot of weight. I think that's probably what I took the most out of that. I mean, again, I was in the sixth grade, so my my comprehension level wasn't the fullest at the time. But no, I mean that's that's a fantastic. But that's answer. what I know that she 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 tried to enforce on us. She was trying to teach us this higher level thinking that I guess a lot of us weren't even there yet, or you were just starting to develop that mindset as a young person. You know, your mind was just starting to develop that even ability to think that deeply and and beyond words, beyond actual. Um, just the sentence itself. Hmm. Critical that, thinking. That that's that's a really in depth answer, actually. Um, actually, you know, Brennan, let me ask you: Would you say it's fair to call someone a New Englander if they aren't born there, but kind of like grow up there? Because I don't. I said he's a New Englander, but I know. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. 
All right. So from what he said earlier on, do you have anything to take away? Not about Frost, but anything else that he mentioned? I think the whole point of, you know, introducing poetry in sixth grade, I'm speaking completely for myself, but, you know, as, as a sixth grade boy, I was not ready to appreciate the depth of poetry, um, you know, in a, in a way that I would be later in my life. But at the same time, to get that introduction, I think is important, even if it's only to stress the importance of this kind of as an art form. Um, and yeah, you know, there's so much poetry out there that does feel like its aim is to just go nine feet over your head. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, so I'm going to get it wrong and I'm sure somebody will correct me in the comments, but, uh, you know, his, his famous line was, uh, two, two roads diverge in a snowy wood. And I took the one less traveled and it has made all the difference. And that's, I mean, even, even a, a 10 year old and 11 year old can take something away from that. Like, you know, make your own path. Um, don't necessarily go the route that you feel like you're supposed to initially um, and just, you know, be, be your own person, I suppose is even, you know, part of that. Uh, but now we're going down, you know, a route of analyzing poetry instead of talking about Jeremy. <laughs> so let's do a little 180. Um, I, I like your, kind of self-diagnosis of having an obsessive personality and going from recognizing the enjoyment, I guess, enjoyment of that feeling of being scared of harnessing that like almost adrenaline and then kind of eventually getting to the point where you find it just bottled in this Shirley Jackson story and going to seek out uh, more and, and more and more of that. So, you know, you, you told us you began to kind of seek out the dark stuff. At what point did you say I could create this magic? Um, I really, I, early on, I never really thought about writing. I think uh, the earliest, like when I think back to like, I never thought I want to create it until I was a little older, maybe late teens. But as an early, what I would do back then is when we would have a book report to do, right? We'd be sent to the library, pick out a book, write the report. When I would pick out a book, if I didn't like the book, I would make up my own freaking plot. I would just make up what it was about, make up the story and turn that in because I'd be like, this book sucked. This is what it should have been based on the kick-ass cover and the title. Here's what I expected. And I didn't get that. So I would create my own basic book reviews to turn in. And I, I think like thinking back, that's probably the first time I was started creating my own stories and I would just turn them in. You know, most of the times the teachers didn't even... Uh, they just check mark it anyway. You don't want to read 120, you know, book reports. Not every, some teachers would, some don't. It just depends, I guess. Uh, but so most times I got away with it. It didn't really matter. Oh, very rarely <laughs> did the teacher actually realize, you know, I just fucking made something up, right? You know, but uh, not until later, maybe in my, in my late teens when I was living in Austin, is when I started actually wanting to create short stories. Like actually I saw in the Chronicle there, which is a very, you know, hip paper that goes out and stuff in the, in the college scene. And they would have contests for South by Southwest and different things. And there was a short story contest and I had been uh, beating around ideas in my head. When I, everywhere I go, I see things. I'll see somebody sit on the side of the road and I'm like, man, I wonder where it came from. What if he just killed somebody? Did he just walk out of the woods? Like, you know, my, my imagination's always running. And, and uh, so I was started thinking, well, when I saw that there was going to be that contest, I was like, well, I'll write a short story for it. Fuck it. I'm going to do it. And so right then I wrote that one. Of course, didn't win or anything. Sent it in. 
But after that, from then on, I started writing a book right after that. You know, I just was like, all right, I'm going to keep doing this because I enjoyed it so much. And that's when it really kicked in that I, I want to create stuff. Um, and I actually started taking it seriously, probably around 19, 20 years old or so. But that's what kickstarted it, I guess. That's excellent. I like that. Um, I liked how you, sorry to cut you off. I like how you can um, just kind of, you know, see things that most people won't even think about and start plotting things in your head. Uh, I forget who and where I heard this, but when you are a writer, you start to analyze life in a different way than say your average Joe, not to say we're smarter or whatever. It's just a different way to look at life and you create stories and, and, I th- that's all I got to say in that. It's just really interesting uh, to point out because I never thought of it like that until I really started diving into like realizing I want to be a novelist and, sure. you know, maybe someone listening to this will be like, Oh yeah, that, that, that's an interesting way to look at life. Uh, Brennan, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, no, I, I, <clears throat> I totally agree with the, the, the go for it, you know, uh, mentality. I, I think that's kind of what you have to do now. You you got your start kind of writing short stories, but uh, you know when you say then you tried uh, a novel. Was the Boulevard Monster your first attempt at a novel, or did you have a couple trunk things before that? I didn't. That was that was um, actually my second novel. The novel I started writing after that first short story got about a chapter in and tossed, you know. And then after that, I went through about um, this. That would have been the early two thousands, and so. And there was a 10 or almost an eight to 10 year period after that where all I wrote was short stories. And I I also at the time um, started working for a magazine back in maybe 2003 called Lullaby Hearst. It was a magazine that came out of New York run by Sarah Jacobs. And I got a job working for her as a slush reader and a book reviewer. And that's when I really, I think, started to grow as a writer because I was starting to read slush reading, man, just hundreds. And I worked for her for a couple of years and I kept submitting my own short stories. Then I got a job with uh, at Dark Discoveries magazine doing slush reading and book reviewing for their magazine back when James Beach used to run it. And um, I pretty much did that for a few years, too. And again, I'm the whole time I'm reading short stories, I'm writing short stories and a lot of short stories I would get to maybe five, six thousand, seven words in. And I'd realize, man, this is way more than a short story, but I don't have the confidence to freaking try to write a novel out of it. I was just trying to find voice and get better as a short story writer. I thought I got to get good first. So I kept doing that. And then maybe around 2012, 13, I stayed home dad at the time. My son was born in 2006 and I quit my job in home health care. And my wife's a teacher. She's an English teacher. And we thought it'd be better if I stayed home. That way we could have four months out of the year, all of us home together, you know, and we would just live minimally. And during that time, I started writing a lot more short stories. By the time he started uh, pre-K or kindergarten, 2012 or so, that's when I was like, man, I'm going to start a novel because he's going to be gone all morning now, three days a week or whatever. And so I went in and I, and that was about the time that Pitch Wars and Pitmad was starting on Twitter, those things. And so I applied for that and I actually started writing a story called Garden of Sunray. And I pitched that to the Pitch Wars people. And I got picked up by a mentor and you work with a mentor and they, they help you develop your whole novel and then they help you develop a pitch. And then they have an agent day where everybody comes and, and that's what the whole pitch force thing is. And I won. So I got a mentor and I worked with the mentor, but the mentor started telling me that she loved the, the sample I'd send her. But then she started telling me, well, it can't we if you're a new author, you, she was a lady who writes mysteries and published author. And she told me, well, you need to write something that's set in modern times. 
first writers don't need to be writing historical fiction. It's not good right now. And so I, I totally rewrote The Garden of Sunray to be a modern book, actually. And that was my first novel. And I rewrote it to where the guy who's Carl ended up being a 13-year-old Muslim kid. Uh, Alice ended up being a 25-year-old male. It ended up being a murder mystery. So there, I wrote a whole novel, you know, maybe 300 pages. And no agents picked it up. It, it busted. Nothing really happened with the pitch force thing. And so a little bit later, I'm sitting around and I'm like, man, you know, I, I changed it because she told me what would sell and what would work. And I shouldn't have changed it. So then I was like, screw it. I'm going to find an idea that I want to do and just fuck, write whatever I want. And so I got out my notebook, whatever, found the Boulevard Monster short story that I'd started years earlier. And like, I'm just going to do this one. And so I wrote it. And so it was actually my second novel at the time, but it was the first one that I ever submitted. And then I tried to get an agent with it, of course, too, and was, I don't know, 30, 40 rejections later, I decided I'll I'll try the small press route. And so I sent it out to uh, five different small presses and three of them wanted to buy it within a month. And I was like, man, you know, this worked. I did what I wanted and it worked. I did what I was told to do and what they thought would sell and it didn't work. And so from then on, I just do, you know, whatever I want, I want to do. I don't care if it's dark, whatever. If I go with it, I go with it because that's what worked for me. Um, and I know that sage advice people always give too. you know, write what you want. Don't write what you think will sell. And it definitely proved true for me. Did your, men- did your mentor give you definitive statements as opposed to saying, to make it very clear that this is just my opinion, this doesn't mean it will work for you or anyone else? Did she- Which way did she choose that or did she go a completely different way? No, she she was very she was very nice and 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 kind about it. But she said, you know, and and she just said in her experience, this is what works. And what yeah. what what people are telling her, I think she had three books published at the time in the mystery genre. And so she was and I I have nothing. So I just I listened to her. But she was kind about it. She didn't say for sure, but she just said, I strongly suggest we cancel this chapter. I strongly suggest we redo this in uh in in modern time and don't do a historical fiction. Of course, then later on, you know, uh, a few years ago, I, I rewrote the whole story the way I wanted to anyway. And that's what Sunray Alice is. Yes. Sunray Alice. Okay. Brennan, go ahead before I start talking about the book. (laughs) Yeah. Oh no, there's a lot there. Um, and you know, I, I would kind of, I would start by saying, you know, that's, it is very tempting to, you know, listen to somebody Well, they've got three books published and I've got zero. So, you know, they have infinitely more knowledge, but at the end of the day, that is one person's opinion. Um, And I I am glad that we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I am glad we got to read the uh, final version of uh, Sunray Alice because it's, (laughs) the book was great and it's just synopsis wise, it sounds a lot more intriguing than, you know, what you changed it to be. Um, what I actually want to jump back to, I I was glad you brought up the, um, let's see, you said you were working for Lullaby Hearse and Dark Discoveries, um, and that, uh, working as a slush reader really helped you kind of hone what you were doing. So I'm wondering, could you share like what kinds of things that you took away from that? What, what exactly did you learn reading so many, such a pile of stories that made you a better writer? Well, I think, I think most, you know, most people that whenever they want to be writing, and I did the same thing, you know, I read all the books on how-to writing. I mean, I, re- I read, you know, of course, on writing and David Morrell's book. I think his book is 
way better technically. You re- I forget what his book called, but David Rail's book, I think for writers is the, one of the best uh, technical, teaches you like, if you're into technical stuff, it teaches you math, like at this percentage of the story, the art needs to be here and your characters in conflict, you know, he's real technical about it. But I loved his book and I loved on writing, but the thing about slush was the opposite of that. Instead of reading something like, here's how you do it right. Here's what you needed you to be successful. That slush was, here's what not to do ever. Yep. Here's what <laughs> never will work, right? And I think it was good. It's like reading a book of what never to do, what not to write. And you see it so many times and you get to where you see it so much that it, it that's what it taught me. It taught me what never to do, uh, the opposite of what to do. And it helped me to realize too, like when we would have anthologies, it helped me actually hone my short story submissions to be able to where I went from getting, you know, I've, I've been rejected like everybody two, 300 times. I've had 50 short stories published over the years, maybe 60, but I've been rejected probably 500 times. I don't know, you know, but, uh, what I learned was how to hone them to get in better. After a while, I start learning, okay, when you have an anthology call and it's about ghosts, after you read hundreds of them, you can see 70% of them come in the same direction. They're going to come in because all of us have these same archetypes in our head of ghosts, of certain things. We all have these archetypes of serial killers or zombies. And if everybody goes with those, most people go with those first impulses. And I learned early on to reading Slush how to maybe always, maybe now, whenever I decide to do an anthology call or a short story call, um, I will always disregard my first five ideas. Because I automatically assume I'm, I'm pulling from the collective archetype that everybody's pulling from right now. I need to step outside of it, you know. And so that's something it taught me, too, was how to never just go with my initial ideas. Never go with what I think, because so many people come at it from the same angle initially. You'd be surprised that, you know, you read 300 stories and 175 of them start the exact same and have the same. And so to stand out, to be different is something it taught me too, how to kind of do that and how to look at things a little differently when it came to submitting. Of course, that was just for short stories and uh, specifically when there was themes. But I think, yeah, the slush taught me so much um, about what not to do, about how not to start stories, about how not to develop, you know, like just seeing it over and over and over, you start hating it really. It's really nice to hear someone throw David's name out there because he's a, I mean, the dude wrote first blood, you know, Rambo, the first Rambo movie. So that's really fucking cool. That's the first to mention. Yeah. His, I forget what it's called, but it's, I, I read it maybe 20 years ago. So it's an old book, but man, it was, it was, it's very good. I thought. Because it's more about the writing. You know, like in Stephen King's book, he doesn't get to writing until halfway through. He does a lot of storytelling like he does. And I love the book. But with Morel, it's the whole thing is about actually writing, crafting, making uh, a story. So I thought it was very good. Yeah. Brennan, uh, you got anything for that? Yeah, I want to I, I, I want to go to novel writing now. Um I, I had read that, you know, you put a lot of influence of uh, mystery and suspense. Uh writing, reading, storytelling uh, into your work and that it kind of helps you develop speed and urgency. And I felt like that was just so on display in the Boulevard Monster. So when you, you know, that, that's, that's your first published novel. So when you're writing that, um, what considerations do you make to uh, just keep the pacing up? Because it, it, it is such a, that, that's one thing that really stuck with me from that book is the pacing is masterful. You do, you, you can 
sit there and you can read that, you know, 200, 250 page book and it doesn't slow down for a minute. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I got that a lot. A lot of people saying they couldn't put it down. And when I when I wrote it, um, the way I attacked that one was I was still kind of nervous about trying to write something big, even though I'd done that one with the mentor. This was the first one I was just going to do how I wanted. And, and I didn't have a lot of a plot done. I had a general idea. I like to I'm kind of like, a, I don't know, like a travel guide when I do plots. I'm not a pantser, not a plotster. Right. I like to know. If I'm going to take somebody on a tour, I like to know where we're going. You know, we're going from Texas to New York. But I leave it open to where maybe a road's going to be detoured. Maybe this guy's going to try to kill me along the way. But I, I like to know where I'm going, have a direction, know who's going to be in the car with me, right? So that's all I really had with that story. And so I was a little nervous. So the way I structured it for, for myself to keep the pace going was I wrote each chapter as a short story almost. And so tried to have the same impact a short story would where it would start off pretty fast. And it would end with either a cliffhanger or something uh, to to um, to get you to keep turning the page, you know. So that makes sense. That's a really good way. I titled each chapter as its own story and wrote it that way. And I think the way they just roll into each other, it it worked out really well. That's a really good point about novels. Um, it can make it less intimidating too for. I guess, newer uh, writers, um, which is sure. thinking of a novel as a bunch of short stories, you know? Yeah, a bunch of interconnected short stories. And I've talked like people, when I when that book came out, I was on a podcast with Armand Rosamilla. I think so. I'm not, I might be butchering his name. Armand Rosamilla, yep. Yeah, and he, he said when he first started writing novels, he was the same way. He would approach each one as a short story, the chapters, because it seems less daunting and then sometimes if you do that, too, it makes it to where the chapter can be more impactful within itself because you're not seeing it as something of something larger. You're saying within this chapter, I want it to be as impactful as a good short story. And so then when you start stacking those up, I think it helps create pace and suspense without even really having to look. And then if the story is cohesive enough and all of those chapters fit together, then it, it arcs beautifully. Each one fits together in doing that, I would think. Yeah, because you want that the end of that chapter. Sure. To to kind of have a cliffhanger, not per se, not in the traditional sense, but but yeah, it's something you want them to turn the page. You want them to think either, and it's it's really just intrigue, right? You want them to not. You want them to want to turn the page, whether they want to know what happens to the character, whether you've just introduced something bizarre like the weird birds picking up, you know, or what a note said or whatever. Like in that book, you you just want intrigue. You want to you want the reader to feel intrigued at the end of every chapter pretty much to, to turn the page. You know, um, the first time I was aware of you was for Ink Heist, uh, when you were on it's maybe two years ago, had to be two years, I think. Yeah. We were for cricket hunters. Yeah. 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 And you started talking about the mentorship with that. And, and that made me kind of like really interested in thinking about how, um, you know, on the HWA, you know, they have, that was for the HWA, wasn't it? For the what? For the mentorship, or was that, am I totally making that up? Nah, the mint, I didn't have a mentorship, but they, the only mentor I did was through the pit, Pitch Wars thing or whatever, the Pitch Mad with that mentor. All right. And it was through Twitter. Okay. I thought you had one through HWA too. Um, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ever have one through them. I wasn't even, I, I, I wasn't a member of the HWA until after the boulevard monster actually sometime after that but yeah i've never done the mentorship through them 
I hear it's good though. I hear it's a good program. Yeah, um, I, I have no experience with it, but uh, I just thought it was interesting to kind of point out that you know not every mentor is meant for every writer. Um, sure. Yeah. Brennan, uh, do you want to jump to Sunray Alice? Because I really want to talk about it. Yeah, no, I'm going to throw in one more thing about Boulevard Monster and then you can take it away. I I just think it's so cool that you basically made Blue Jays terrifying with that book. Right. Like, I mean, it, it, it's just one of those things that if I handed you a book and said, read this, you'll never you'll never think about Blue Jays the same way. You're going to kind of give me this, uh, you know, side eye glance. I think I shared with you, I um, I. I listened to the book and I would get up at uh, 6 a.m. before work every day and take a walk and put it on my headphones. And, you know, it's it's just starting to hit spring and the birds are calling. And it's like, generally, that's a nice atmosphere. But with that book going in your ears, it's 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 a different monster. Um, I just felt like that the, the, the characterization in that book was really very interesting because you know without delving into spoiler territory you know you're behind the main character of Seth the entire time and the further you go like you you almost start to question that like am i really behind this guy yeah. um it, what what a debut novel man so i mean good good on you and it was uh nominated for a stoker wasn't it yeah, it was uh, it was finalist for the first novel, Superior Achievement First Novel. That's yeah, awesome. The, and the, the thing about the Blue Jays came up when I was a stay-at-home dad, you know, like I say with my son, we were sitting there one day and there was actually this Blue Jay. We lived in Amarillo at the time and there was a Blue Jay that would come on our back porch. And for some reason, it wouldn't leave. The Blue Jays were nasty little birds too. They attack other birds and they would it would come up on our back porch and they'd be hopping around and most times you go out on the back porch through the sliding glass doors and the birds fly away but there was this one blue jay that would never leave we'd go out there and it would just freaking hop around your feet like a pet it was really weird and i had been writing the story but something was missing right and so then one day we were about to go on vacation and my son and he's probably five or six at the time i'm not exactly sure but he was like dad do you think that uh, Mr. J is what he called him is going to watch the house for us while we're gone. So nobody will break in. And I said, sure. And then all of a sudden it clicked, you know, because then I, and then I was, I was maybe 10,000 words into the story at the time, but, but with no birds. And then I clicked, <laughs> this is something that is missing. There needs to be an oversight over Luther, right? There need, and so then the bird watching the house. So it all just clicked right then that wham. And so then I went back and re wrote the first, you know, two or three chapters incorporating the birds. And then from there on, it, it flew with it. But that's how they actually got involved was a, a bird on my porch one time just wouldn't leave. They're so crucial, though, too, because it's like, right? you know, the you're you, you kind of as an outsider, you you look at the plot and you're like, oh, well, I would do this. I would uh, I would go to the police. I would do whatever. Yeah. And the addition of the birds basically takes every one of those options off your plate. So you're just like you, right. you've got this automatic rock in a hard place situation. Right. That whole isolation, you know, like that a lot of horror has. You have to isolate. You have to constrict. And that those birds were the, the linchpin for that for me that kind of tied it all together. Everything else I was working on with it. Yeah. You guys like right, the birds? Patrick, I'm gonna by, throw it uh, to you, sir. Do you guys like Hitchcock's The Birds? Oh yeah. <laughs> the movie right. still creeps me out. It's it's right. still just like what seriously, what are you gonna do? Like, I don't have any guns and I, right. I got a baseball bat, but you know, that won't work. Okay, so uh, Sunray Alice, I found that to be just 
it's an absolutely, I say instant classic, not in hyperbole, because it feels like one of those old timey books. It feels like it could sit on the shelf with like a Mice and Men or, um, I don't know, a Hemingway book. I, I man, my roll of decks is not working right now, but, uh, it's all the traveling, right? The traveling, you got some. Yeah, probably. It, 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 yeah, you know, it's like two-year-old that just yeah. loves you, but just uh, doesn't give you a break. Jumps on your stomach, thinks it's <laughs> fucking funny. <laughs> Leave me alone, you little bastard. I love you, though. You're cute. <laughs> um, so, Alice, uh, Sunray Alice, um, I thought it was really cool, man, because, like, we started out, without going to spoilers, we started with an old woman, and we're talking about, at one point, how on helicopter tours – or in a helicopter, rather, um, you can see the bird's eye view of this just luscious Garden of Eden, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, I'm jumping around here, but at one point, we're telling a story of, and I never thought of it as this, but it is a coming of age story where we're talking about a Nazi, but you make this person uh, a protagonist. And I don't want to tiptoe anymore uh my toes are getting tired that's a running line so i stole that but can you fill in what i think i've ever said that yeah i got <laughs> yeah yeah you, you it's when we had rowan hill on and nico Bell. okay that that's my take i'm done tiptoeing my feet are getting tired it's on the preview um so <laughs> can you tell us what the synopsis is i really should have started with that i'm off my game so bad sorry jeremy no it's fine um yeah, I mean, the general synopsis of the book, like the back of the book teaser, you know, is just that there is this lady, like you said, who has lived her life. She's in her 90s now and she has carried a big secret her whole life. And she's the caretaker of this garden. And and I've never read a lot of stories that take place where I grew up in Texas Panhandle. There's not many because there's nothing there. It wasn't established till the 20s or 30s. It's flat. You can't grow anything. So the garden being there, if you've ever been there or know anything about it, having a garden there like that is freaking magic. You cannot do that. You can't grow a tree there unless, <laughs> you know, you spend $500 in watering. It's insane. But um, yeah, the story was basically she's the caretaker of this garden and there's a huge secret behind it. And she's come to the end of her life and she feels like she needs to pass that on. She can't, the secret she has about the garden and its or, or, origin and stuff that happened to her back when she was 16 during World War II, stuff that she's never shared. She decides it's time for me to share it. You know, that the everything is aligned. The fates have aligned. The right person has come into place. Everything is in order for me to finally pass this on. So it's kind of like, She's getting everything she's dreamed of for so many years to finally have everything in motion to get this weight off of her chest. And really, I don't know if it's a weight, but it's a, you know, it's not a burden, but it's, it's a desire, I guess, to finally tell somebody her truth and finally have it known this is what happened. And that's kind of the synopsis. And so then, but then it goes, of course, most of the story, 85% of it takes place in during World War II in the last week of August, 1944, and um, a prison escape that happened from an internment camp nearby her town of Sunray. And some of the people that escaped come to her town and it's her experience interacting with them, meeting some of them, battling them, whatever you want to say. But that'd be the general synopsis, I guess. <clears throat> In the afterward, uh, you do mention that these, are they concentration camps? Was that the proper? But they were they're they're called internment camps. Oh, oh internment camps. Yeah, yeah that's what they were called. Like, um, yeah, 
So the, you said that in the afterward that those were you found that those were real in your area. Yeah, I, I was watching the PBS special and I learned that pretty about an hour and a half from where I grew up, I grew up a little north of Amarillo in a small town called Border. But down south of Amarillo is a town called Herford, and there was the I learned there was a Herford internment camp. It was actually the second biggest one in the United States at the time. And it, there were 79 of them in the States at that time. And it was the second biggest one. It had over 5,000 POWs, three to 400 uh, military there to guard it. And uh, once I learned that I'd been there, I'd never heard about it. Lived, grew up in the panel my whole life and I didn't know anything about it. And then I learned about it and it was just fascinating to me. Man, these were here. I didn't know we had all these camps here in the U.S., you know, and in my research learned that there were during the height of the war there in the 40s, we were bringing 30,000 uh, POWs a month, Germans and Italians over here. There were camps in every state other than Vermont, Alaska, and Hawaii. But, you know, down in the South is where most of them were because we had the space. And Texas were some of the biggest because they had the space. Um, and that's how I learned about that camp, the one that I based mine on roughly. Um, I, I tried to keep it similar in size, similar in scope and everything. But, of course, I changed the name and and fudged it where I needed to. Yeah, that that's crazy, man. Like I'm fascinated by that war, and um, so many of us are. And I know the only internment camp in the U.S. I knew of was the Japanese internment camps after Pearl Harbor. So yeah, see, and I, that's the only ones I knew of too. I had heard of those, and they were more out west, right, like in California. And stuff. Yeah, but the ones like the one in Hereford, they were. They, it was like what they would do is they they would bring the prisoners in through Galveston, the Gulf of Mexico. Then they would get, put them on a train in Houston and train them up to the panhandle. And along the way, it's just wide open plains back then. And so they built camps everywhere, huge ones out in the field. And the one up there is kind of like in the story, there was a train track that ran about two miles from it. And there was no roads going to anything, just a dirt road. And so they would stop the train and those guys would get off and have to march the last few miles to the camp. And then they lived there in these four giant warehouses, you know, with pot belly stoves. And, and they worked in the fields around them, a lot like what happens in the story. People would line up when the trains arrived to watch them. I mean, it was a spectacle. There were so many. I, I read diaries of people that lived around there back then. And uh, watched so many different things and read stuff. It was it was really weird that I had never heard of it growing up an hour and a half away. I didn't like you. I didn't know there were any Germans here and stuff like that. So it was it was very fascinating to me to learn that. And whenever I learned it, I was like, I want to incorporate this into one of my stories somehow. At the time when I learned it, I just didn't know where, you know, till it fell in place later. Yeah, the only Germans I knew of in any America was uh, South America, where uh, supposedly a lot went to like Argentina. Places like sure. That. But um, actually, some of the ones I was reading, some of the ones that escape real prison escapes happened from the ones in the States, like in my uh, story. And some people, the hardcore Nazis that escaped tried to get to South America. They would escape these camps and try to make a run from Mexico to head down to South America. Um, some of the ones that escaped, actually, in some of the stories I read. Yeah, I saw this just this uh, the other day, this interview with... Um, uh, Nazi youth meeting a Holocaust survivor, and they were these two old women, and uh, they had a good conversation. And it ended up one was a uh, the survive the Holocaust survivor was a therapist, and she ended up being the Nazi youth uh, took her on as a client because the Nazi uh, didn't have a good relationship with her daughter because she was raised 
with a mother that never showed love, never hugged, never did any of this. And she did that with her daughter and there's resentment, of course. So really, really, really interesting uh, yeah. story that, I mean, I'd read that book. They both have actually memoirs and they exchange books too at some point. So, <laughs> I mean, there's still a lot to tap into the world war two. You know, you think you've read or seen all the stories, but there's, there's just so much to tap into still. Uh, Brennan, take us away. <laughs> so, so, I mean, well, one thing we have been talking about is you putting kind of mystery and intrigue into your stories, but mixing uh-huh. that with real depth of character. And I, you know, th- this is a, it's a great synopsis. It's such an interesting, you know, uh, like you guys were just talking about uh, digging into German internment camps. And what if, you know, one of the survivors was not quite who everybody thinks he is. But to me, this story succeeds because of the characterization of, of Alice. Uh, she is just so vibrant. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what went into making Alice. Yeah, um, when I originally, and I think I wrote about this in the author's note too, originally it started out as a short story like most of my novels do. And I was telling it from... Carl's point of view. And I had set it aside. And then years later, when I decided it met back up with the internment camp stories, um, that's when I started writing it out. I was like, I'm going to go ahead and do this the way I wanted to, right? Redo that book from before. I just want to do it my way because I needed to work on something there during the first months of COVID lockdown, excuse me. And um, but when I started writing it, I started realizing this isn't Carl's story. It's more about her. This is her story to tell, and he's involved. And so I started focusing more on her being the protagonist instead of him. And for me, that's when it all shifted and it clicked into place that, yeah, I mean, it's like she started talking to me. It's like I was introduced to a real person and I met this little girl and she started telling me her story. It's like she came to life. I think like when I get older, you know, my memory starts slipping. I'm going to probably talk about her like she was my real neighbor, like she was my (laughs) aunt, grandma, like to me in my head, she really is that real to me. And I think that as I started learning her story, that's why she, I think, started jumping to life to me because I started realizing, no, this is her story and everything she went through and how it's not just about Carl and what he went through. And the, I, I realized they were both kind of in the same place, right? You know, they both were trying to be forced to be something they didn't want to be. Her into this beautiful, proper, prim lady who's ladylike, but she wasn't like that by her mom and him, you know, with the situation he was in. And they both had recently lost their fathers. They both were trying to find hope when they felt hopeless. And so, but I realized it was more her story to tell than his, even though he was in the same place as her. And that at some point they were going to have to meet. And that worked out good because I needed, they were going to have such a short explosion of a relationship and a togetherness that they had, it had to work for them to be in the same place and be in the same exact situation for it all to come together perfectly. And for her, you know, it it just, I don't know, she, like I said, it really is a weird thing, one of those magical writing things sometimes where things just start clicking, where it was like, I it was like she was talking to me and telling me, no, this is my story, let me do it. And I've thought about, you know, like, um, when people ask me, where do I get, where did she come from, or how does that develop her? And I really, I don't know, you know, I think, like, it could be part, I think it's part of a lot of things, maybe uh, my mom being a single mom who was a strong woman, and she's a strong girl, you have my grandma who grew up in a farm in Kansas didn't have indoor plumbing till the fifties. And 
you know, remembered seeing the first car ever drive by in the 20s. Things like that are kind of definitely in there. And at the same time, too, which is kind of weird, more of a mark. I before I started writing that, I had been playing both uh, Last of Us and Horizon. Both of those games have young female protagonists who are outcast, who are tough as nails, who take it upon themselves <laughs> to do whatever the hell they want to. And so I, I wasn't thinking of that in writing the book, but I think those probably also filtered in a little bit into her personality and her story. Um, when it comes to her, I guess, demeanor, attitude, behavior type things. Yeah. And I wonder if uh, Pat shares this too. One, uh, one book that came out, oh gosh, actually, I don't remember when it came out uh, a year or two ago. Uh, Tim McGregor's Heart Strange and Dreadful. Ooh, yep. um, ha- the main character was a girl named Hester. And okay. Alice just reminded me of that character in that it took a really good book and it made it like just completely memorable. It made it into a book that I'm going to be thinking about years from now. Um, it just elevates it to that next level. And I just think that's so important to have those characters who do jump off the page um, and, you know, whatever whirlwind of magic, you know, that it, that it, that it was that you can credit to bringing Alice to life. Like it worked. And for me, that's what the book hinges on. Word Thanks. wizardry. right yeah it was just but it was just like i said it was almost like meeting her to me Mm -hmm. it started to be like okay well this is what happened and of course stuff unfolds along the way that i didn't know that when you're writing and all of a sudden you you realize oh this happened to her this is and it pops in there and it just worked it all seemed to flow so well and i I would come in every day, you know, and it was real cool. I would sit down and I would tell my wife, you know, everybody's home since it's COVID. And I would come in here, put in my headphones, put on my gloves, do what I do to get ready to go. And I would basically time travel. I felt literally I would time travel for three hours every day back to 1944. And I felt like it was, it was a, it was a real fun experience. You know, I felt like I really got to go back there and meet her and, and ride along with her as it happened. So I think. I think that shows in my writing of her how close it was to me personally in a weird way. Yeah, it makes sense. So I don't think we flat out asked this. How much research was actually involved in this process? Mm, there was a lot of the research. Mostly it was just the historical stuff. And it's because I just wanted to do it. I had done the research on the internment camps years before. Um, and then the, the, the town Sunray, you know, I grew up around there. And uh, so it... I kind of knew the panhandle real well. I grew up there. So I didn't really have to research any of that. But the town itself, though, I did do research on where, like, the stuff I put in there, how, like, oh, the only roads paved were to churches and Main Street. That's mm-hmm. true for the town of Sunray at that exact time. The uh, movie theater being the only place with air conditioning, that's exactly how it was at that time. There was one filling station. There was one grocery store. Like, a lot of that I tried to keep in all the diaries I read of people that actually lived there at the time to keep as accurate as I could. And then a lot of the other research was simply to make sure I got the right types of perfumes, the right types of cars, the right types of candy at the store, the right brands of flour that were sold in the panhandle at that time. So you had to do a lot of research on stuff like that to keep it accurate and to keep the people who like to pick it little things like that um, (laughs) from being able to say, hey, they didn't have this such flour at grocery stores. And then I, 
I everything in there, I guarantee you, you could have bought in Sunray in 1944 in the Texas Panhandle. Or the cars that are there would have been there. The way the town was built out of scraps, how all those, I have it where there's all these empty shacks brought in for oil field workers, all 100% true. That's all historical stuff um, that was literally the way it was there. Those towns were thrown up overnight. And the panels, it was a unique place. It really is 10 or 15 years behind you know, the rest. And people are like, well, what about the indoor plumbing? The indoor? No, there wasn't. It really wasn't. I researched like toilets for a long time, right? How in the East Coast over there, they had toilets in 1880s. First ones were being put in and stuff. Panhandle didn't even have a town until the 1920s. And they popped up overnight as oil towns. They didn't bring in water. They didn't do plumbing. Those towns popped up and went away because they were boom towns. They were oil towns. The ones that stayed were few and far between. I mean, the the Comanches were still dominating the place till the 1880s over here. So it was, you know, those things I had to make sure I got accurate, even though for a lot of people, even when, when we were editing it with Kenneth Kane, he'd be like, are you sure they didn't have plumbing? And I'd be like, man, I grew up here. I did research for so long. I promise you, <laughs> I promise you this is accurate. You know, this is, this is the way it was, man. Um, but yeah, so that's that the research I went into was mostly for the historical accuracy to keep it as authentic as I could. To the time period and place and that, that that's all fascinating um yeah I, I love history uh i wrote this short uh western and man it took me like sometimes with shorts i'll write two complete stories the third one might be it and then i still gotta reconstruct it a bunch of times before i nail it and and then i can start the historic stuff i don't know how you are it sounds like you're the same but I worry about the historical accuracies after I know the story pretty damn well. Like the majority of the stuff, the mechanics, they're they're not going to change. But the like aesthetics, if you will, sure, I'll change those once I get those nailed down. Like for example, um, I was trying to figure out well, what would a little girl in Montana, because that's where I said it in eighteen. 80s call mm-hmm. her father would be dad would like these aren't rich people so would it be you know what would you what would their nickname be um how would they address what what would they be dressed in for sleep as opposed to their day-to-day shit like that man like it's <laughs> it's a lot but like if you like it it's fun to do that yeah i think i think like you said story is the most important thing you, the story is what sells it those little details are things though that just authenticated especially because this is the first one i've written that is dated that far back and and i think when you do anything historical like that you definitely have to try to the story has to be there but then those little pieces are what make it real i think yeah those little historical touches accuracies i guess for sure so uh for people that are in our circles it's no secret that your book was only out with its first publisher for two weeks um Mm -hmm. and this is addressed to brian too brennan had just sold it was public so uh, no issues here but he had just sold his second novel novella uh, no novel novella book book (laughs) uh with silver shamrock before they closed their doors um and then you know they closed shop and you know you guys didn't know at first and you eventually found out so when you guys found out i haven't experienced that what does that feel like when your your book no longer has a home 
You can go first. Jeremy, we'll, we'll throw it to you first. I'm terrible okay. at that. I should really address who I'm talking to. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I, I I I was in a really weird spot. I think me and Ronald Kelly were actually in the 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 worst spots because my book had only been out about 11 to 12 days. His had only been out since the Tuesday before. I think mm-hmm. it's how it was. So we were in this weird spot where I just started getting reviews in. I just started trying to sell autographed copies, ARCs, you know. And so then it was, it was, it was very, it wasn't, I don't know, I wouldn't say depressing, but yeah, it was definitely, I was dejected, like, oh my God, you know, I've been waiting, I'd signed a contract for this book maybe a year almost before that and waiting all that time and doing all the editing, getting the cover, you know, getting everything done. And then literally within 10 to 14 days of it, launching and you're like excited yes let's see get it out there you just get kicked in the face really by okay well it's gone it's pulled no and you start getting emails of people saying i I have a few copies but i refuse to review it i ordered autographed copies but i don't want them anymore or and i have to tell people i already sent them i'm sorry and they i'd be like you can just do with it what you want i guess um but i had to deal with a lot of stuff like that so it was kind of it was it was just kind of damn but I, i couldn't do anything about it except try to go forward I was a little worried that I wouldn't find another place to place that book, though, because it isn't really horror in the sense that most of the people in the community on Twitter call horror. It's a lot less dark than you look at a lot of these small publishers. And initially, actually, with Sudray 2, I didn't even pitch it to horror people. I, when I finished it, I knew it really wasn't dark, dark. It wasn't near as dark as my first two books. But I was like, I tried to pitch it to other publishers. I didn't even try. And so when Ken actually approached me, he approached me because somebody had told him, I heard you wrote another book and you can't find a home for it. Me and my wife had already decided I'm going to trump this book because I can't find a publisher. I can't get an agent. And but then Ken reached out to me and he was like, well, let me read it. I said, well, I didn't want to pitch it to you because it's not. I see what you published. I know what you published in mine. It's not going to fly with it's not a horror like uh, that. But he loved it and gave it a shot. So then after those two weeks, it was. Yeah, it was it was rough to deal with, but all I could do is try to find another place, you know, which is what I had to do. And luckily I found Crossroad. I reached and I didn't know anything about them other than I know they have a lot of clients like uh, Ronald Kelly. And, and I knew that he'd been with them a long time. And I didn't really talk to anybody about it, but I just I reached out to them and told them my situation and told them I had two books that needed homes. And they immediately said, sure. You know, and actually the Boulevard Monster, I've been on a monthly contract with that book at the time. My contract for it ran out about a year ago. But to keep oh, wow. it out there, I kept a monthly contract going where I could cancel at any time. And so once I got on with them with that, I told them, hey, what would you say if I went ahead and brought all three of my books? And then the Damons at Crossroads were like, sure, man. Yeah, we'll do them. We'll do audio of all of them. And I was like, and that, that was a real relief. It was a big relief, actually. And now it's back to the next step, which is hard for me. You know, I had I tried to start building that momentum for two weeks and then it got shut down for a month. And now it's like people have forgotten. At first, everybody's excited. Ooh, the book's coming out. New book. Yeah. You know, I don't come out with books that often. Once every about had three and five years. But all that got shut down so fast that now it's trying to rebuild it is hard because, you know, the cycle moves fast on. Twitter and book world, everything. So everybody's already moved on. I mean, it's a month later, everybody's moved on. My book is old news. It's a republished book now, even though it was only out two weeks, but I have to try to treat it like it's a new release again. And so, yeah, it was difficult, but what are you going to do? I mean, 
like said, it happens. It's something like a rite of passage thing, I guess, with the small presses. It happens and just got to try to do the best we can. I don't, I hate that mentality of, uh, ooh, shiny new thing, which is why, like, Brennan and I really focus on everything, older books, new, you sure. know, in between. Um, tell me if you want to pass, I'll cut this part out, but uh, we don't have to go into details, but you did receive pretty ugly messages due to someone else that had nothing to do with you. Now, yeah. my, my question is, is um, how, and this is more for people in a newer position of being a writer, or maybe they can relate to another art form, but when you receive, for whatever reason, any form of negativity, especially from a stranger, how did you personally handle it? And do you have any advice for anyone listening that um, you would say, hey, this is probably a good way to handle that? Yeah, I, I think the way the best way to look at it, the way I did it was the same way I would if somebody gave me a negative review or the same people that after Cricket Hunters came out and there was some cat that got killed in that. And I got some hate emails about not having animals die in my story. You know, I respond the same way as I did to that, which is, you know, I'm sorry that you feel this way. I'm so, I, I really never meant to hurt anything or disrespect anybody. Um, I sympathize with you and I'm sorry. Um you feel that way. That's really all I can say because, and that's all you can really do is kind of just try to accept where they're coming from. But I try not to blame them or accuse them or, you know, I understand they're coming at me with some kind of feeling that I maybe don't understand. Even if it's not warranted for me, I'm not, I'm not, my, my the way my personality is, I'm not going to be combative. I'm not going to tell them it's not my fault. I'm not even really going to try to defend myself because I don't see a point. I'm just going to try to sympathize with them and move on because. I, I don't think it's going to help for me to do anything else. I don't think there's anything else I could do in that situation that would better the situation or better my stance with them or anything like that. That's interesting. Maybe I took this away and no one else did, but from what you just said, made me think, uh, and I've gotten lost in it plenty of times, so I'm not saying I have, but um, I think at times, not everyone, but we lose ourselves in the, uh, the instant reaction where we don't think about even our own mental health. And if this payoff, if this interaction, if this immediate uh, thought in my head, if I say it out loud, how's it going to make me feel down the line? How's it going to make the other person feel? Um, sure. I don't really have an end to that, but if uh, Brennan, if you want to jump in now, feel free, sir. Uh, you know, I thought, the two of the first words that Jeremy threw out were dead on uh, depressed was the first one. And it's, you want to leap there, but dejected probably is a better one. Um, and, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't even necessarily, we were in different boats because that whole, your book has been out two weeks. That sucks. I mean, there's just no way to put a, a shiny label on it. It sucks. Um, at, at least mine, I knew what I was, you know, it, it, it had been out since July, you know, uh, it's, it's firmly in reprint territory, uh, where, where, where I, um, and I, I, I have, uh, nothing to announce yet. I have some things going on behind the scenes where I'm hoping to, uh, have publishers, uh, for, uh, Slattery Falls, as well as the sequel that is written and, uh, 
ready to go, uh, as well as the third book, which is in the process. Uh, and and the Western, I just I, I hope to have homes for all those announced pretty soon here. Um, but you know, I always heard, don't write a series, don't write a series. And honestly, the biggest reason that I wrote a series was because I knew that there was a home for book two. Um, people who have read the first book, I mean, it's open ended, but it could have it it, it could be standalone, absolutely. Um, and I don't know that I would have written book two, um, if I knew I was going to go have to go shopping for a home for it. So I am hoping to find uh, a place that will, uh, you know, take the first two and, uh, agree to do book three as well. Um, and you know, the Western, it was, it was dejecting at first, but at the same time, it's, it had been under contract for, I think maybe a week and a half. Uh, it, it never saw print, never saw edits, no, nothing beyond just signed contract. So, I mean, it's, I almost look at that as a rejection, you know, I'm still sure. shopping that one. Um, and that one, um, that that's an easier sell. I, I already know I've got, uh, I've already got a couple people interested in that. That one's going to definitely have a home, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, and you know, I had a, I, I had a lot of really good people in the horror genre reach out just, you know, um, uh, thankfully I didn't get a lot of those nasty messages maybe because my book hadn't just come out, but I had a lot of positive outreach, um, and a lot of people offering advice. And the one that stuck with me is it's an opportunity, you know, because, sure. um, as, as happy as I was with the whole process behind Slattery, uh, cover design, editing, um, interior art, uh, release it, everything. Um, I, I have no bones about, you know, having worked with silver shamrock at the time, um, having, you know, all four books that are in the world in the same place, um, you know, it's not a bad thing, but now I have the opportunity to see, well, what can these things do? Um, what can, what can I do with them? If I spread them around, if I go elsewhere, uh, what new readers can I reach, uh, with these stories? So that's kind of the way I look at it. And, you know, that's, it's, it's wild to me that you had trouble finding, um, a home for Sunray Alice. Cause, and, and he said this online, this isn't a secret. Kenneth Kane has, has said, who edited the book says, this is, I think the best book that Silver Shamrock put out. Um, so it was a cap, but it was, you know, that's no small feat, man. They were around for uh, near three years and putting out almost two books a month. That's, that's pretty damn high praise and, you know, yeah, good he, for you. Cause I think you've earned it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. When he told me that it was it very, it blew my mind, you know, cause I know how many books he's worked on and all the editing he's does. And it was, it was kind of weird because, I was I was the second to last book they released and I was the second book they put out because the very first book they put out was In the Scrape with Steensland and James Newman. Craig and Hunter's my book was their very second book ever published by Silver Shamrock. And then Kurt Sunray was the second to last one ever released before Ronald Kelly's, you Holy know, the shit. next Tuesday. So it's kind of like I was the second and the second, second to last, second right off the bat with them. But yeah, kid. I know Kim Kane did a lot of good, you know, all the stuff he did with them. It was very uh, humbling and, and it's very, 
you know, it made me feel really good that to hear his praise about it. And it was just, I, but I think it was hard to place strictly because like I said, it's a, uh, it wasn't, it's a little less dark than what a lot of these small press horror places like. And, but, and I know that a lot of us readers, we read, you know, most people in this, we read anything. I read science fiction, Western, but the publishers themselves, a lot of them are very niche for, they like specifically darker stuff. And this was a little less dark than what, that's why I think I had trouble placing people like, eh, it's not really horror. It's not really I even had people that wanted to maybe do it as young adult. And I was like, well, you know, I guess it kind of is. There's not graphic mm. violence. There's not any sexual things at all. So it could be considered that, you know, but uh, I think that was why I had a little trouble finding a place for it. It just wasn't dark enough for the horror, but it wasn't mystery or suspense enough, you know, for the, it was kind of an in-betweener. But I knew if I could just get it out there, my, my hope was people would read it and like it no matter what. That ending especially. Um I don't know how you can read that book and not just fall in love with it. I think it's a, it's a really good book. And that ending just, I mean, uh, I can't say why, cause it will spoil it, but it just <laughs> does something very unique that can open up in any direction it wants, or it can stay isolated as that one story and they will bur- both work. Uh, incredibly well and uh jumping back to kenneth kane he deserves and i'm sure most listeners won't understand why but kenneth kane is um he deserves a, a goddamn plaque because he does stuff where it was a moment where someone needed to step up and ken was there for every single author and uh more people should be like him. So if you are listening, if you do not know who Kenneth Kane is, he's also a writer. We encourage you to check out his books. Yes. Uh, Brennan, which which direction would you like to take us in, sir? Uh, do you want to go to currently reading? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Jeremy, what are you currently reading? Um, today i was reading i've been reading hearts in atlantis actually recently finished speaking of tim mcgregor i just finished wasps the other day (laughs) uh the wasps and the ice cream and then i've never read the one about hester so i have to look into that one i forget what you said it was called strange and dreadful okay yeah i need to look that one up because i read i read wasps i got a an arc of that um and i read that but today actually i was reading in hearts in atlantis i'd never read it of course i've seen the movie and mm-hmm. so I read the first story in there, which was the movie version. And now t- today I started the second novella in there, which is when they are in college in the 60s, I guess. So but that's what that's what I was reading this morning. So so I've never read those. I didn't I didn't actually know it was four novellas till recently. So try to read that one. That's, that's a really good one. I was just recommending that to Patrick recently because he's uh, you know, he loves the I guess historical horror would be the right, you know, uh, term for it, but basically, you know, stuff that takes place in the past. Um, and it's, it's well done. It's not necessarily typical King, but it's, it's a, it's a good collection. It's a memorable one. I think some of his, some of my favorite stuff of Kings is his nine, like 1120, uh, 263. I think it's my favorite novel of his ever. It has nothing like, the you know 40 other novels that are strictly horror but i i love Mm -hmm. stuff like that so that's such a great book and yeah 
Yeah, what I really love. I mean, like I'm a sucker for JFK stuff. I, it probably is because he's he's uh, uh, a Massachusetts Irish boy, just like myself. And I'm right. like, that's fucking cool. That guy fucking you know what that's <laughs> Did you see the Celtics? Day one. Two, uh, they're up two. Yeah, they I ended saw, up winning when I came in here. They, they were losing by seven. No, they were and, down by seven or eight most of the game, but they yeah. uh, they dominated the second half of the fourth quarter. Yeah, I, I, I saw, I'm, I'm rooting for them, man. I'm rooting against uh, you know, yeah. Kyrie and them, but uh, yeah, when I came in here earlier, yeah, I'd been watching that they were down by seven at the first half, they were getting slaughtered, but then I saw they were yeah. starting to make headway, you know, the first part of the second half, but yeah, oh man, the the, the game they played on, um. Game one. Sunday, maybe. Yeah, I saw yeah. That. Oh, that game oh, was fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, the ending of that was great. It's a good series. Uh, Brian, <laughs> yeah. what are you currently reading? Oh, I've got. We, we haven't we haven't uh, recorded the show in a while, so uh, I've, I'm like all stocked up. Um, we are speaking with Patrick C. Harrison tomorrow, co-founder of Death's Head Press. So I just finished his Splatter Western, A Savage Breed. It is. Savage indeed. Patrick does not hold back in his writing at no, all. He doesn't. <laughs> right. If you have not read, uh, you know, he has that. He has um, a collection of short stories, Visceral, which is co-written with Christine Morgan. Uh, Visceral 2, which is co-written. I don't uh, think that one's out yet. No, uh, With uh, Daniel Volpe. Um, he just, he, he doesn't even, he definitely does not write with a filter. Um, yeah, but... That said, he's a very good writer. He um yeah. he he knows how to keep that narrative voice going. So I mean, like I saw a lot of people had tapped out on that book because it was just too much at the beginning. And I I completely commiserate with that. If you read the first 20 pages uh, of that book and were like, nope, this is not for me, <laughs> you're probably right. But I mean, he does have a great storytelling voice, uh, if you can overlook that. And speaking of great storytelling voices, I'm I just also finished uh, Pearl by Josh Mallerman. Uh, I think that's my only that was my last unread Mallerman, so now I got to wait for his next one to come out. Um, and I'm also working on the Book of Queer Saints, and this is one that I I, I want to you know encourage people to check out because it's edited by May Murray, and she just poured everything she had and then some. Uh, to making this project come to life. Uh, absolute passion project. Um, and, you know, every every story in it, it's got people like Haley Piper, Eric LaRocca, Joe Koch, um, Eric Raglan, a bunch of people. Um, and it's very carefully curated. You know, like I said, it just, you, you read it and you know how much care and time and effort and uh, blood, sweat, and tears she put into it. So I would definitely recommend people check that out. Patrick, what about you? Yeah, so uh, I'm in the middle. I got different TBRs. I got uh, audiobooks, ebooks, physical books. So uh, for a physical book, it's upstairs. I forgot to bring it down. I'm reading Anybody Home by uh, Michael J. Uh, Sidlinger. Um, I really hope I'm not butchering his surname, but uh, it's a home inv- home invasion book where it uh, what's that thing uh, fourth dimensional where it's like the characters talking to the reader 
Uh, bring the wall. Oh, yeah, bring yeah, the fourth bring wall. The fourth wall. Not fourth mm. dimensional. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm reading that right now, and it's kind of doing that, and it's it's really interesting. Like it's subtle, and it's not like creepy at first, but then I'm thinking about it, and um, I'm kind of getting like some uh, Francis Dollarhide vibes at times from Red Dragon, uh, simply for the fact of like. I remember this one scene for those that haven't read it through the serial killer uh, first uh, Hannibal Lecter book where uh, Francis is on a tree looking in at a family. And I just like, you know, I don't like my blinds open at night um, because I'm probably paranoid from all these horror books, but like that, I don't want anyone looking at me that I can't see. It's just so creepy. So yeah, uh, really good book comes out in August. Uh, I'm reading Finishing up, Patrick C. Harrison, and is it Volpe or is it Volpe? Daniel Volpe? I think it's Volpe. Okay, so, yeah, I'm reading Visceral 2. Uh, <laughs> where do I start with that book? It is full of, uh, it's fucking gross, it's nasty, but, like, I don't say that in a bad way. I want to eat while you read this book. I can't because I'm a bitch with that stuff, but it's it's really good. Like, they're both excellent writers. Really good stuff there. And uh, just a quick shout out to an older book. It's called 361 by Donald E. Westlake. Uh, I'm trying to cram in as many hard case crime books as I can before we have one of the co-founders of Hard Case Crime next month, Charles Arde. Uh, Arda, again, surname, please hope I tell me I'm not fucking that up. Um, and that's enough out of me. Uh, Jeremy, where can people follow you? Uh, they can follow me at on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the general sites, I guess. Goodreads, Amazon. Pretty, my name's pretty unique. It's pretty easy to find. You just type my name in any of those places. You'll be able to pull me up pretty quick. So it's just to be clear, uh, it's your full name for your... Yeah, like I think on Facebook, it's at it's Jeremy Hepler. On uh, Twitter, it's at Jeremy Hepler. On Instagram, it's Jeremy Hepler Author. So Perfect. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? I really, I really don't. Um, I, one thing I will say is cool though, that I did today that with Sunray, what was cool is for the first time I got to, uh, with Crossroad, they sent me a bunch of, um, auditions for the audio book. And so this Ooh, afternoon, wow, it, that's you know, fucking, after, dude, that's fast. The, huh? That's sorry to cut you off. That's really fast. Right. Right. And so I was, I, I didn't expect it either. And so David emailed me today and was like, here's he, you know, and, and, and sent me this huge file of these, you know, he's, we're trying to get a woman to read it, you know, with the Southern drawl. So it'll be, since it's a lot first story and he sent me all these uh, different people that had auditioned. So that was something cool that I got to do today that I've, ne- I've never done that before. I got to take part in the audio version of that and listen to them all. So it's kind of cool to hear them all read the same section and go back and play them over and over and different ones and try to figure out, okay, which one to me is Alice, which one is, um, so that was something cool. And also on that same front with the crossroad today, also David Dodd, the other David there, we finished the ebook version of the Boulevard monster today. We redid the cover. We're going to use the same picture, but we redid the cut. He had to redo the cover and then we redid the inside. So the E version, the ebook is actually going to be back. It's been down for a while now, but, for a month, just like the ones, but it goes back live tonight too. And then the, the print one should be back out soon. But I learned that today, went through the last proofread of the, the digital copy of the Boulevard Monster. So it should be back up and out there soon. Crossroads does good audiobooks. I've listened to a few of theirs. Um, 
for Ronald Kelly's books specifically. Uh, they, yeah. I can't believe they're doing, you know, talk about cast gangs They're They're taking on a lot of books. I don't, I'm sure I'm not even aware of most of them, but from the ones that I've seen, I mean, it's not even like they're just like, well, let's take all of them. They're, they're taking books that they believe in and uh, they're doing, they're, they're doing a good job. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how many hours it would take to organize all that stuff. Right. Just going through the the technical things to set up the books and all that. I mean, well, and all the logistics of it, like, because like all of us had to send them all of our files from Shamrock. So we had, you know, I I have a shared folder where I had to download my movies, my EPUBs, my PDFs, my covers, everything has to be reformatted and changed and, so yeah, oh, yeah. oh right because the logo and stuff right yeah wow uh that's crazy brennan any final thoughts i uh, know i just want to thank jeremy for your time um i hope that people will check out sunray ellis you know like you said people tend to go for what's shiny and it is technically a reprint but is it ever worth your time can't say enough good things about this book man Thanks so much. Yeah. And thanks for having me on guys. Appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. My final thoughts are, is that uh Sunray Alice really is um, it's surprising that there weren't uh, a line of, there wasn't a line of author uh, publishers ready to buy this thing, man. I mean, it's seriously something that I really hope that whoever's listening to this considers buying the book, reading it, and uh, giving you feedback, because that's really important to remind people to give the authors positive feedback. If, you're, <laughs> if you have anything negative to say, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, next episode, 143, is with Patrick C. Harrison III. He's the co-founder of Death Press. As we said, he's the author that uh, Brennan and I uh, really enjoy reading. Um, listeners, as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. 